know, like, and trust you, those are the most important things from either a seller's perspective or a broker. If they're representing their seller, they need to know you, like you, and trust you that you're going to close the deal. Real quick, before the episode, I want to give you a gift of 25% off. And that gift actually is from TransUnion Smart Move. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. Because as landlords, we tend to be most concerned with getting paid on time. You might also know that hundreds of thousands of landlords have to deal with the headaches of evicting tenants each year. Evicting a tenant can be painful, costing as much as $10,000 in court costs and legal fees, and take as long as four weeks to complete. What if there's a trusted way to help prevent the headaches of dealing with evicting a tenant? Make the smart move right from the start. Smart Move's online tenant screening solution can help you quickly understand if you're getting a reliable tenant, which will help you avoid potential problems such as non-payment and evictions. For a limited time, listeners of this podcast are invited to try Smart Move tenant screening for 25% off. Here's how Smart Move can help you find your next great tenant. Make a more informed decision with Smart Move's proprietary credit score built specifically for tenant screening, which predicts evictions 15% better than a typical credit score. Reduce non-payment risk with Smart Moves Income Insights Report, which enables you to analyze the applicant's income within minutes and determine if additional income verification is needed. Get critical information quickly with a full credit report, criminal background, and eviction history report. With over 5 million screenings completed, Smart Move can help you make a better leasing decision for your rental property. If you own a rental property, Smart Move can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. As you can tell, if you're watching this or listening to this, that this is not Joe, this is Theo. I'll be hosting today and we've got a new co-host for this week's episode as well as likely next week's episode and that is Danny Randazzo. Danny, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Theo, and just excited to be here with the best ever community and listeners and We'll go through our follow-along Friday. Let's do it. So I'll be playing Joe today. You'll be playing Theo today. At the end, we'll evaluate our performances and see how we did. Excellent, Theo. So as Danny said, this is follow-along Friday. So we are going to discuss the things that we learned in the interviews last week. And I actually did the interviews last week. I'll be doing them for the next few weeks. So I guess you'll be hearing a lot of my voice on the follow-along Fridays. But before we get in, I just wanted to do a brief introduction on the co-host, Danny. So he is the key principal at PassInvesting.com. So he's actually an apartment syndicator. He's an author, entrepreneur, host of a real estate mastermind, national speaker, and volunteer with the first T. So he's all over the place. And I want to tell a funny story because I told him before. He volunteered at first T. I was actually a part of the first T. And I remember one of my, I wouldn't say a fond memory, but a, probably a negative memory was I wrote my name in pencil on one of the picnic tables at the first tee you know, headquarters or whatever. And they made me come and paint every single picnic table that they had in the little lunchroom area for writing my name on there. So lesson learned. If you're going to vandalize things, don't put your name on it because <laughs> they know who it is. Certainly. So he has over a half a decade of professional experience working as a financial consultant. He advised multi-billion dollar companies and helped them achieve results in areas that include revenue performance, increased profit margin, and enhanced technology utilization. 
Now he's a full-time real estate entrepreneur and investor. His company, PassiveInvesting.com, purchases value-add apartment communities that are greater than 150 units. And Danny is focused on asset management, building relationships, investment analysis, planning, and all things finance. Then a fun little fact about Danny, he met his wife on a boat in Vietnam when they were both traveling from San Francisco. So that is an interesting factoid. So hopefully we can get through these two lessons first. We can talk a little bit about Danny's background and some projects he's working on right now. But let's hop into the two lessons that I learned from interviews last week. As I mentioned, I only interviewed one person. His name is Matt Spangenberg. He's a 36-year-old real estate investor who literally started from nothing, and that'll be one of the lessons that we discuss. He saved up money to buy his first property, and then he worked on the property himself, put in the sweat equity to increase the value, and then he actually got a HELOC loan, the H-E-L-O-C loan, on that property. He used that money to buy another property, and essentially he's kept renting and repeating that same strategy of getting HELOC loans. So basically he turned twenty-five dollars to $30,000 that he spent on his first property into a portfolio of $7.5 million without having to put in a single dime of his own capital into the deals after that initial twenty-five dollars to thirty grand. I can't remember exactly how much it was. In that episode, he went over a few of his specific deals. One of them was how he was able to create over $350,000 in equity on a deal. And the other one was how he was able to do 100% owner financing on a deal, which brings us into the first lesson. So if you remember, it was probably a month ago, me and Joe were talking about different strategies for finding deals. And I remember I interviewed someone who invests in Boston. And apparently in Boston, a lot of the multifamilies are owner occupied. So you'd find a 12 unit building in Boston and the family lives on the top floor so technically, if you wanted to do door knocking, you could door knock at the actual property. So you'd go to the top floor, you go to the owner's unit, and you knock and say, hey, can I buy your property? Whereas what Matt did is he literally tracked down where the seller lived. It was a six unit in, I'm not sure what town it was in, but he owned a six unit in that same town where the guy lives, a regular single family home. And Matt literally went to this guy's house and knocked on his door and asked if he wanted to sell his property. And I remember me and Joe were talking about how, you know, if someone did it to us, we'd be so annoyed. The strategy probably only works if the person lives at the house. But now we've got proof that this strategy indeed does work if you actually knock on their personal residence. So I thought that was really funny (laughs) that that he said that. That Uh, is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Obviously, any strategy out there works. I think as long as you're taking action and going through those steps of either tracking down the owner, maybe emailing, calling, texting, or go and knock on their own residence door and you can make a deal happen. And I think that's certainly a feasible avenue to go down. And I've certainly been there and kind of done that before. I remember tracking down an owner online, finding where they live. I think we found out through Facebook that they were a huge, either a Clemson or a South Carolina Gamecocks fan. And so I called and built some rapport with that person by starting to talk about college football. And then once I had that rapport down, I kind of said, hey, look, I understand you have a property over here. Would you be interested in selling? So I think as long as you take action, you're going to find the deal and kind of make them happen. Exactly. I'm on bigger pockets a lot. I think you're on bigger pockets a lot as well. I see you posting on there. 
And the common question is, oh, I'm looking for my first off-market deal. How do I do it? Or I'm stuck between, should I cold call or should I do direct mail? As you mentioned, you just do something. Just pick one and then do it and do it for six months. See if it works. If not, then do the other one. Not necessarily wasting time, but overanalyzing, overthinking what strategy is going to be the best. Because in reality, it's just about taking action. And something you said specifically about when you found out about the person, did some background research on them and discovered that they were the Clemson or the South Carolina fan. That's something else that's huge as well, because I'll tie this back to that story in a second. But at the end of the day, if you're doing a direct mailing campaign, and obviously if you have a, a standard template that you send to everyone, it works. People do it. But I'm sure that the response rate and the conversion rate would be much higher. But not only there were handwritten mailers, but there was something that was specific and personal to that person. Obviously, that takes a lot of time, which is why it's probably a better strategy for these larger deals because you're not sending out 10,000 mailers a month. But at the end of the day, people might not necessarily sell to the person that gives them the highest and best offer. If they know you, if they like you, if they trust you, it's a lot more important because they care more about actually closing on that deal than getting some crazy high offer and then that person can't end up closing or completely disappears. And the chances that are happening are a lot lower if there's some sort of personal rapport going on between the two already. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head with that, Theo. Know, like, and trust you. Those are the most important things from either a seller's perspective or a broker. If they're representing their seller, they need to know you, like you, and trust you that you're going to close the deal And even if we tie it into the greater syndication or working with investors, that rapport, again, know you, like you, and trust you, that's going to help people find investors for their deals that they have going on. Especially when we're talking about this example of finding an off-market deal, reaching out directly to the owner of that property, establishing that they know you, they like you, and they trust you, like you said, you may not be the highest and best offer in terms of price, but if they know you're going to do what's right for them, what's right for the property, ultimately it makes it a win. And going back to my story of reaching out to the college football enthusiast, we'll call him, he actually owned the property with three other siblings. So not only was he making the decision for himself, he was also considering the feelings, the impact and the financial output for the three other siblings that were also part owners in the property. So we were able to build that rapport. He trusted us enough to take it to his siblings and say, hey, look, we have a buyer for the property and I know them. I trust them and they're going to do what they say. So let's Mm -hmm. get it under contract and we'll sell the property to this guy and get it done. Yeah, I wasn't going to say this, but I guess we're going to do three lessons now because you you mentioned something about the fact that it was owned by three other siblings. So not only did he have to solve the pain points or present an offer that was attractive to that one specific person, but it had to be attractive to the others as well. That kind of comes back to what's really nice about these off-market deals and working directly with the owners that you can identify these types of things, right? If if you're buying this deal directly through a broker, you might not have discovered that the owner were actually owners and they're all siblings and they might have had some issues on what price you want to sell all that. Maybe one sibling didn't want to sell it. Maybe the other one did and there were some issues going on there. But with Matt's story, that same owner whose door he knocked on obviously was surprised that this guy showed up his house and didn't want to sell. And he kept going through all these different reasons why he didn't want to sell. 
each time you came up with a reason, Matt presented a solution. There are standard reasons, like I don't want to pay capital gains tax. So that's why he presented owner financing. Or I want to continue to get cash flow. So he did an interest only for a certain number of years. But there's other couple of interesting runs I didn't have in my notes, but I remember him saying one of them was that the guy had a personal connection to the house and he didn't want to sell it because he didn't want someone to go in there and change a bunch of things or go in there and knock the property down and build something else or kind of just ignore it and let it get distressed. And so Matt kind of went through and explained to him exactly what he planned on doing to his property to make it really nice, to fix some things, to make sure that the tenants that currently live there are continuing to have an enjoyable experience. And he bases off of some of his old deals. It got the guy excited. And then Matt mentioned that what really sealed the deal based off of the offer that he presented to this guy is a seller financing offer. Is he said that you'll be able to sit on a beach with your feet up and not have to worry about being a landlord anymore. And the guy told him that that was the one statement that ended up sealing the deal for him, even though the seller was not able to get as high of a price that he actually wanted. I think ended up settling for $100,000 less than what the owner actually wanted because of the way that the deal was structured. So I thought that was also interesting. Whenever you're doing off-market deals, you need to figure out a way to identify what the person actually wants. If they say no, well, it's always something that they would do to sell the property, even if it's you know some crazy high purchase price. Once you get them thinking yes, then you can figure out how to present an offer that gets close enough to what they want that they end up selling. Yeah, I think one of the best ways to kind of figure out that information from the seller, because they're not going to come out and say, hey, Theo, I want to sell this property so I can go sit on the beach and count my hundreds of thousands of dollars since I've owned it for 30 years and I've got it paid off. They're just going to kind of say, look, I might be interested in selling. What's the price? Tell me what's the price. And I've always found it helpful when you're thinking about is seller financing an option or is the seller, would they even consider it? Because as we think about things from a buyer's perspective, seller financing seems appealing in a lot of opportunities because you can come in with less equity. So instead of needing 20 or 30% to put down, maybe you only need 10 or 20 and the seller will carry back maybe 10 or 20%. So it brings your out-of-pocket as a buyer down. But the way I found to figure that out is you ask the seller, well, I see you bought this property 30 years ago and it looks like you're going to make a pretty good amount of equity or capital gains on it. What are you planning Mm -hmm. to do with the money? And that kind of gets some talking. What are you planning to do with the money? You're going to buy a, a fancy car or something with this? And most of the time, everybody's a hardworking investor and they're not going to go out and spend their money on a car or on a luxury vacation, but they're going to say, oh, I have a plan to purchase a new building, which probably means they're not as interested in seller financing. Exactly. Or they may say, I have no plans for the money and I'm kind of at that retirement age. I don't want to own any more properties. Being a landlord's tough. I've done it for 50 years and I'm ready to be out of the business and just sit on a beach. And then you say, perfect. Well, would you be interested in seller financing? Because what you're going to do is you're going to hold a note back. It's going to be secured in a second position against the asset. So If for some reason I don't pay you, you can foreclose on me and take the property back. But I've got full intention to pay my debt to you on a regular monthly basis and you can collect your mailbox money or I can certainly just ACH it directly to your bank account every month 
And it'll be a way for you to minimize capital gains and collect a monthly income stream over your retirement period. And a lot of sellers find that very appealing. So I think it's just getting that conversation going, like you said, understanding what their needs are and what their wants are, and just open the door by saying, seems like you're going to have some good capital gains or good equity by selling this property. What are you planning to do with it? That's a solid question to ask. And then keeping in mind that obviously this is not something that happens in one sitting. He didn't knock on the door and have this entire conversation and go back and forth for like half an hour. He's like, well, he's like, I don't want to pick capital gains. Like, well, and then he says, well, I want cash flows. I go, well, this too. Yeah. I think this was a three to six month process actually finally get a deal under contract. Yeah. And real quick, one last fun fact about the communication piece. Actually, at the Best Ever Conference back in February in Denver, there was a speaker at the event and I absolutely loved it and remembered this. And I tell all of the people that I meet, whether it's someone I'm networking with or at my mastermind, but the stat was the rate of closing with a person to be able to build that know, like, and trust you. And so Theo, if you and I are going to do a deal, I'm not going to sell you and close you on the first interaction. And actually by the fifth or sixth interaction of you and I either meeting face-to-face or having a phone call or having Mm -hmm. coffee or doing a Zoom meeting, it was like a 65% closing rate. Mm. So best ever listeners, keep that in mind when you're thinking about, am I going to get this seller to sell on the first interaction? No. But if you can make those interactions, for example, if the seller's like, give me your price, give me your price, on the first time you meet them, just say, let me run my numbers, talk to my business partner, and I'm going to get back to you. Now you're on your second time. So I think always making a reason to have multiple interactions. And if you can get to that five interactions, you're going to have a much higher success rate than just trying to talk to them once or twice. Exactly. You're not trying to buy or sell Girl Scout cookies or candy bars. These things are expensive. People have held on to these things for a long time. There's a lot of personal investment going on here. So yeah, it takes time. Any sales book, any sales technique strategy should focus on that and say, hey, you shouldn't have to pressure them to close. I guess some of them do say that, but for real estate, that doesn't work. And you've proven that with that 65% number. So lesson number three from that interview with Matt, it's a quick one, but as I mentioned, he started from nothing. I know technically everyone started from having absolutely nothing, but a lot of other things that I see people asking on bigger pockets, I guess that's how I gauge what new investors are thinking <laughs> is what I see on bigger pockets because I'm on there all the time. But they say, Hey, I don't have a lot of money. What should I do? How should I get started? Or, Hey, I want to raise money because I don't have money myself. Or how do I get 0% down financing? How do I get seller financing? Essentially, how do I get started if I have no money whatsoever? And I always want to say you need money. Obviously there's ways to, avoid having to put money down if you find a way to get a lot of experience by working for someone somehow. But most likely, most people that started had some sort of money in the game or their own their own money. So the answer is just get a job for a few years and work. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what Matt did. So I think he said he bought his first property when he was 20. And he decided at 18 that he wanted to buy real estate. And so instead of saying, well, I can't do this at 18 because I don't have any money, I can't remember exactly what he said that he did, but he just worked a full-time job. I don't think he went to college. I think he just left college or just foregoed college altogether and worked a really crappy full-time job for two years to save up that 20 plus thousand dollars to buy a property. 
So his best ever advice was just, if you want to get into real estate and you're not lucky enough to have college funds saved up, or your parents have money, or you just, you come into the idea of real estate investing, once you actually have a 401k or whatever, you just need to work your butt off and save up the money to get that down payment. It helps if you're young and you want to do a house hack because you don't have to save up as much money. Like I was able to get into real estate with six grand, I think, buy a $170,000 property for $6,000. So you can save up six grand in a year or two, depending on what job you have. But at the end of the day, the majority of people are going to get into real estate by having their own capital and buying a property with their own money. It is very difficult to raise capital without having done a deal yourself. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but it's very difficult. And we're kind of going over all the seller financing, but when you were kind of going through the spiel of, if I don't pay you back, I'll foreclose on you. Something that might come up is like, well, what evidence do I have that you're able to pay back these types of loans? How do I know that you can do this? Then your answer should be, well, I've done this many deals before, or I've done this many seller financing deals before, or I have this much in debt that I've paid back and never foreclosed on before. So if you've never done a deal before and you try to pursue seller financing and they ask you about your background and you have no answer, then obviously you can rely on team members. But at the end of the day, the point is, is that if you want to get into real estate and you don't have money, then take a year or two and make that money. Yeah. A couple of quick points here. One quick tip. If you are considering trying to do seller financing, print your annual credit report for free. And it's like 30 some pages. It shows that you make your monthly payments. And I have done this before where I send in a 70 or 80 page document about my own personal financial ability and say, look, here's 80 pages of proof that I will pay you back with your seller financing. Not that they're going to get through even the first page, but there's 80 pages, this huge thing of proof that says I pay my debts. And that's always helpful from a seller financing standpoint. And Theo, you're absolutely right. The best way to get into real estate, to have people trust you is by having your own ownership and your own money invested in deals because that's a huge deterrent, which we're not saying it's not possible, but it just slows your ability down to build a portfolio when and if you're trying to raise money without having any money to contribute yourself. And so Mm -hmm. to that point, I always refer to it as having an equity nest egg. And like you're saying, go and work for it, get another job, maybe wholesale some properties to make a percentage of money, get commissions from a sales job, do whatever it takes to build up this equity nest egg. And then you can start to buy your own properties. And when the first interview that I did with Joe, episode 961, I talk about how I was doing house hacking and how I was working a consulting job and saving up money to build that equity nest egg, which ultimately allowed me to go out and buy my first investment property, which was a $1 million office building. So if you want to get that full story, check out episode 961 and I'll kind of break down that equity nest egg and how important it is to kind of jumpstart your success. Exactly. You need to have some chunk of cash to be able to work with. I guess not need, but it's helpful. And data's proof of that. I'm proof of that. Most investors are proof of that. And Obviously, that's not what you want to hear if you don't have any money right now and you want to get started tomorrow, but you got to build a solid foundation first and taking that time. It was even better. And you kind of mentioned this too. You kind of killed two birds with one stone. 
to find a job that's real estate related to make that money. You're hitting both the experience and the money angle. So you know, wholesale properties, find a syndicator or whatever type of real estate investor you want to be, find that person to work for. And you might have to do it for free for a while. That's what I did. I worked for Joe for free for six months. And now it's turning to a full-time job. And now I'm talking on a podcast, <laughs> all of his viewers. So it's possible. Be open to new opportunities. Exactly. All right. Well, I wanted to get into some more details on, on what you got going on, but maybe we can talk about that next week. I just got to wrap this up because I've got other interviews to do today. So we're going to move into the next section, which is trivia question. So last week ended the month of wacky real estate laws. And the question was, what Western state has a law that has restrictions on keeping <laughs> on keeping upholstered chairs, couches, and mattresses, so essentially indoor furniture on your, your porch or front lawn? So any furniture that is not manufactured for outdoor use? And the answer was Colorado. I think it was actually Boulder, Colorado, that has that restriction. And the reason why is because apparently it's a pretty rowdy town and they're having issues with people burning furniture on their front lawn. So in order to avoid that, they just made it illegal to have furniture on your front lawn. So I thought those, that was funny and interesting. Those darn college kids probably out there in Boulder having too much fun. Exactly. And then again, the first person that got that question correct gets a free copy of our first book. This week's question, I'm not sure what this theme is yet, but I'm going to try to make this, whatever the theme of this question is, the entire month. And then Danny, you get to guess the answer and we'll see if you're right next week. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. So name the country where it is almost impossible to buy a pre-owned resale home because most of the houses depreciate in value and more than half of them are demolished after 30 years. Also in this country, because of the fact that obviously they're constantly building new homes, this country also has four times more architects and two times more construction workers per capita than the U.S. This is a country. Name that country. Four times more architects per capita. So it's just a ratio of the mm -hmm. scale. The country is going to be Bahrain. Okay. So that's Danny's guess. Everyone else, you can guess either in the YouTube comments below if you're watching the video, if you're listening to the episode, then you can email the answer to info at Joe Fairless. And again, the first person to name the correct country will get a free copy of our first book. And then to wrap things up, we are no longer doing the review of the week. Last week, we started by discussing a free apartment syndication document that you can download for free on our website. So this week's free document is going to be the annual income calculator. So all the way back in series number four, I went over the ultimate syndication success formula. And one of the steps in that formula was to determine what you wanted your annual income goal to be. And the reason why is because once you determine how much money you want to make, you can kind of reverse engineer exactly how much money you need to have in verbal commitments from your investors in order to raise enough capital to close on a large enough deal that will get you the desired return goal. So instead of having to do that calculation yourself, we went ahead and put together a nice clean Excel template where you just type in your annual goal, the return structure you plan on having with your investors, and then it'll spit out exactly how much money you'll want to have in verbal commitments from passive investors, and then how large of a deal you need to look at and kind of all the different criteria you need in order to hit that annual income goal. So if you want to download that free document, 
as well as listen to those episodes. You can either download it in the show notes of episodes 15, 13, and 15, 14. We're going to include a link to the actual calculator in the show notes of this following Friday episode, or you can go to syndicationschool.com and find it there, as well as all the other episodes and the other free documents that we've done so far. So that wraps it up. Danny, I would say you did a good job playing Theo. The only difference is that you talk way slower than I do. I talk so fast (laughs) and you talk so slow and so clear. So I I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you next week. Danny, before we clock out, where can people find you and learn more about you and contact you? You can contact me. Just go to PassiveInvesting.com. Reach out to me there. My email is Danny at PassiveInvesting.com. So if you've got questions or things that I can help with, happy to be of service and help the best ever community because you're the best. Absolutely. All right, best of listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy your weekend and we will talk to you soon. If you own a rental property, TransUnion Smart Move can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.